Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank. Member FDIC. In the book, I go and I meet with a guy whose name is T. Wynn. So it's spelled T-H-I-N-G-U-Y-E-N. And he's a philosopher of games. He talked about how when he first goes onto Twitter, it's like, you know, you use it, whatever, you're putting whatever. And then he, he gets a viral tweet. So he writes this kind of funny quip and it just takes off. And afterwards, what happens? His brain starts to go, what could I do that would be a funny viral tweet? So this guy's a philosopher. His job is to think for a living. So he would normally be thinking, okay, I have this thought that's kind of interesting and relevant to this literally philosophy stuff I'm doing at a university. And he would normally take that down the deep rabbit hole you need to unpack all the layers between that because that's like a really complicated stuff, right? But once he has that tweet go viral, he starts to notice instead of taking this thought into this like really deep layers, this cave where I can get all this really relevant information, my brain starts to go, I wonder how I could get that into 280 characters and get some more retweets. Yes. And that's a totally different thing. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. I just want to at the top of this acknowledge that my voice sounds bonkers right now. I have crazy allergies and people are like, what is happening? I'm like that Friends episode where Phoebe gets a cold. That's what's happening. But we're still here. I'm going to try not to cough while you say anything wise. But I would love to, if you're down, will you just tell the audience who you are, what you're about, what you're into? 
like that that little moment and we can sort of take it from there. Yeah, but I'd like to start by saying you missed an amazing opportunity because you yes. just told me how you're running three marathons in three days. Yeah. You should have been like, oh, yeah, I just ran like three marathons in three days. That's why my voice is so raspy. Yes, from, I know. You're right. <laughs> from I these high-altitude marathons, I do multiple days in a row. No, I'm just a weenie, and the allergies are really getting to me this year. So I feel fantastic, but my voice sounds crazy. I wish that's why I was hoarse, but no. Well, next year. Um, okay, so my name is uh, Michael Easter. I'm a professor and a journalist, and I cover health. I cover wellness. I cover psychology got a couple books. One is The Comfort Crisis. My new book is Scarcity Brain. And they basically, I would say the overarching themes in my book are how the world has changed in ways that are often at odds with what makes humans happy and healthy and find meaning. So The Comfort Crisis looks at how, as the world has become more comfortable, we've lost a lot of the things that improve us as humans. Things like what? Um, okay. For example, We've engineered movement out of our lives, right? We invented exercise like 150 years ago because in the past, you used to have to physically work to survive. Um, that's just one example. Uh, there's many others, though. Like we spend 93% of our time indoors now, and we know that time in nature is good for people psychologically. Yeah. We don't experience temperature swings the same way we used to. We've engineered a lot of risk out of our lives, which is good in the grand scheme of things. Like all these things I'm talking about, good in the grand scheme of things. But at the same time, we have a drive to do the next easiest, most comfortable thing because that served us in our past environments that we lived in for thousands and thousands of years. And it backfires when you put us in an environment that we've sort of engineered to be more comfortable and, and easier. Yeah, I had sense. this experience this summer. I've always wanted to walk the Camino de Santiago. Are you mm -hmm. familiar? My mom did that. Did she really? 50th birthday. Oh, awesome. so sick. That's yeah. that's really inspiring. Yeah, she's I, I've always wanted to do it. And I thought I would have to wait until my kids had graduated because I can't obviously just take 40 days and peace out. But I realized I could do it in chunks. It's not as a endurance challenge athlete. It's not how I would typically approach something, but I thought, well, that's a way I could actually get to try this and not have to wait, you know, 15 more years until my daughter's old enough. Mm -hmm. So I went this year to do a week and on the third day, so every day you're hiking like 16 miles and we had particularly chosen the Northern route, which is over mountains, gorgeous, 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 but very steep. On the third day, we stop at like you know, two o'clock or something to have lunch and lunch is whatever you were able to get at the little village the night before. So it's, you know, a fresh loaf of bread and this cheese, this, you can't even understand how good this cheese is, it's a local cheese. And that's our lunch, right? We had made coffee and put it in a little thermos and we're eating bread and cheese and coffee sitting in the dirt on the side of the road, totally exhausted. And I had this epiphany of how seldom we have activity in our life where we're that hungry, where we are as hungry as I was sitting on the side of the road eating bread and cheese. Just like I pushed my body and I was so hungry. It was the bet, literally top three meals of my life. And I'm a foodie, top three meals of my life. And I'm thinking, oh, this is the thing that we are not actively doing pursuing, challenging ourselves in ways that we get to the point of being this tired and this hungry for something we chose. Like this has been removed from us. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So there's um, there's research on this. And the research suggests that in the past, um, we moved about 14 times more than we do today. Wow. 
So the average person was walking, you know, anywhere from, I don't know, seven to 13 miles a day on average. Today, the average person takes about 4,000 steps, which is about two miles. But then the other thing you have to factor in is like, okay, not only are you covering a lot of ground in the past, but it's also, it's rougher. There's more ups and downs. And oh, by the way, you're probably carrying stuff. And when you decide to rest, it's like you rested, you're in the dirt. So you might be like squatting. You're doing like all these things all day that are more physically challenging. And I do think that hunger is the best sauce. <laughs> and we tend to uh, be more hungry after we've done some physical work. So another part of the book that uh, the comfort crisis I look at is how hunger has changed. 80% uh, of eating is now driven by reasons other than true physiological hunger. So we eat because it's like, oh, it's this time that I normally eat. Oh, I'm, I'm bored. What should I do? I've swiped through Instagram for 30 minutes. Now nah, I guess I'll just have a sandwich. And what does that do to us, not just physically, but how has that changed? You know, because I, I feel like there's so many different approaches to nutrition, right? So there's fasting and keto and like timing it and nutritional, whatever. But if we're constantly eating when we're not hungry, how is that affecting us? Oh, well, I mean, besides you... <laughs> the fact that we're the most obese country in the world, yeah. besides that. Uh, element. So I think the story of improving your life today is that you often, often have to go through short-term discomfort to get a long-term benefit. And I think we have a lot of ways if we're feeling discomfort to deal with it, internal discomfort. Food is one of them. So a lot of people will stress eat, right? Instead of going, okay, well, why am I stressed out? What can I do to, like, what is this stress telling me I need to do? Yeah. It's like a signal, right? Change something. But you can fix it in the short term if you, I don't know, snack on some M&Ms or you pull out your phone and you binge Twitter or whatever it is or insert all these other behaviors that, that we overdo. I think that is a, a common theme of conversation with my audience is choosing the thing that will make you feel better in this exact moment because it is a Band-Aid to the pain that you're feeling right now. Right. I can have a drink. I can have something to eat. I can numb myself by just scrolling. I can numb myself by watching Netflix for five hours. I can remove myself from what I'm feeling in this moment because that's fast. Because all of the solutions to sort of get to the core of our issue, it takes time. And it takes time to make it better. It takes time to see any results that kind of promote the idea of wanting to do more of that thing. Yeah, I just sort of wanted to unpack why that happens. Because for some people, I'm positive they hear you say that and they're like, well, what's wrong with wanting to be comfortable? What's so bad about that? You're not doing anything wrong if you want to be comfortable. I mean, humans evolved to want to be comfortable because that drive kept us alive for all of time. So it's, it's not bad. It's just that when you make that choice too often, you tend to see that in the context of today, it leads to problems. Yeah. Right? If you eat every time, whatever the hell you want, any time you want, like we know that's going to lead to problems. Yeah. If every single time you feel a twinge of boredom, you're like, let me go on Twitter or Instagram. Like, okay, let me, that, that's a pretty good recipe to start to feel like a crazy person in your yeah. head, right? <laughs> Be stressed out. If every time you get the notion to exercise and you put one foot in front of the other and go, oh, well, this is actually not that comfortable. I think I'll just sit down. Yeah. It's like these drafts that we have, they made sense in the past. They don't always anymore. And so you start to see problems pile up. And 
to your sort of question about why do we do these things too is, um, so I live in Las Vegas, right? And Las Vegas is a town that is designed to basically take people out of moderation, right? So we, everyone knows everything is fine in moderation. Then the question is like, okay, well, why the hell can't humans moderate? Why do we suck so bad at it? Now in Las Vegas, there are slot machines everywhere. People may not realize this, but there's obviously slot machines in casinos, but they're in grocery stores, gas stations, bars, airport. airport. Yeah, yeah. everywhere. <laughs> you walk off the jetway and it's like you're in a casino and people play these things all the time. So I'm a journalist. And when I make an observation that doesn't seem to make sense, I want to figure out why. Because everyone knows that you're never going to win the longer you play a slot machine. Right. Right. The house always wins. Always. Las Vegas was not built on winners. Yes. So I, that's what I want to figure out. Why do people get hooked on slot machines, basically? So long story short is um, this question by way of talking to this person who tells me to talk to this person who tells me to talk to this one of those, right? I end up at this uh, casino on the edge of town in Las Vegas. But the catch is it's not in sort of open like anyone can come into this casino. It's a casino laboratory. So it's a, the casino industry and a handful of other tech, big tech companies, they built a real life working, breathing, fully functional casino, but it's used entirely for human behavior research. So they're looking at how all these different things that happen in casinos get people to make decisions later on. By the way, everyone should be terrified of the fact that you said, and also big tech companies. <laughs> right. If people don't understand the correlation between why a big tech company would want to understand how a casino operates, man, you're missing it. But yeah. please continue, Michael. So <laughs> The world's you, on fire. It's fine. We're all yeah, fine. <laughs> you've, teed, you've teed me up perfectly. <laughs> While I'm there, I meet a guy who designs slot machines. And if you want to understand why people get hooked on slot machines, you have to understand this three-part behavior loop that I call the scarcity loop. And it's in my, uh, my book I just came out with called Scarcity Brain. Um, so it's got three parts. It's got opportunity, unpredictable rewards, and quick repeatability. Okay. So, opportunity, unpredictable rewards, and repeatability. Yep, okay. Quick repeatability. Quick repeatability. Quick becomes okay. important because you just talked about velocity. So yeah. we'll, we'll bring it back. So you have an opportunity to get something of value. In the case of a slot machine, it's obviously money, right? Unpredictable rewards, you know you'll get the thing of value at some point if you repeat the behavior. But you don't know when, and you don't know how valuable it's going to be. I'm already laughing because I see this in an Instagram scroll. Like, yeah. I'm like, oh, there's going to be a cute dog video if I get past all this trash. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So now with slot machines, it's like as those reels roll, you could either lose the dollar you bet. You could win $2. You could win $2 million. So there's this crazy range of outcomes that could happen. And then three, quick repeatability, the reels fall, you just do it again. Yeah. You can do it immediately again. Now, the reason that, um, to your point, it's not just casino companies who have built this casino is because you can put this system in a lot of other things and capture people's attention and drive behaviors with it so oh my god i'm i'm so sorry i interrupt you but i just had an epiphany yeah oh i'm gonna sound Say so it. stupid right now does the algorithm the algorithm must know exactly the video that i want to see based on my past behavior it knows what i will watch rewatch, like and enjoy is it 
not serving that up to me <laughs> until I've scrolled for a while? Is that happening so that I stay on that device longer? Because That's a really good question. I think that, so here's what I'll say is that now people will criticize the hell out of gambling and slot machine gambling, but it's heavily regulated industry. So casino companies know, like if we just did this, this, and this, we could increase our gaming revenue and time. They use time on device, which happens to be like the exact same language that big tech uses. We can increase our time on device. But the thing is, is it's all very heavily regulated by the government. Like each state has gaming boards and all this stuff. With tech companies and all these other companies using this loop, like it's not regulated. Right. Like no one's going, oh, well, you can't do that to increase, you know, time on device or whatever it might be. So random rewards, those unpredictable rewards, they capture human behavior and behavior of all different creatures, like pigeons, rats, basically every creature we've studied it in better than anything. So it's in social media. It's also being put into financial apps like Robinhood. It's what explains a lot of the rise of uh, sports betting. It's in dating apps, right? Swipe, swipe, swipe. Oh, I got a match. Is that that super handsome, seemingly wealthy man? Or is it that one where I'm like, ah, he's kind of dorky, looks yeah. a little bit poor, but we'll see what happens, Yeah. right? All these different places right now. And there's really nothing better at being the ser serial killer of moderation, taking us out of moderation. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way, as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle, and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone, whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. Guys, no two listeners of the show are exactly alike, which means that no two vacations you take are going to be exactly alike either. And if you're looking for a place that will serve all of you, 
Texas has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities that allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. I love Texas so much, I moved my family there for five years. Because here's the deal, Texas has it all. Are you a beach person? We got you. If you love a rugged vacation, not my jam, but there's plenty of campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. My favorite part about Texas? The food. It is the thing I miss the absolute most. Whether you love barbecue or Tex-Mex or just want to be in cities that take their food very seriously. You can enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. It's like we know, I hope that we know, that social media is not good for us. Period. Like, I used to when at first it was like, oh, this is amazing. You connect with people all over the world. And yes, you can go on. You can see a cute puppy video and you can find out what's happening in the world. But I don't I don't see any world where it is good for human beings. It's and I'm even more terrified for my kids who come up in a time period where they are so much more exposed to it than I ever was. I feel like I'm one of the last I'm 40 and I feel like I'm at sort of the tail end of the generation who knows what life was like before the internet. Mm -hmm. Like I know the before and after. When I came home from school, I went and got on my bike and like played with my friends. We didn't go on any sort of screen or device. And it's such a quandary because on the one hand, I don't think it's good for human beings. And on the other hand, I don't know how you do business in 2023 and beyond if you are not present in that space. The important thing, I hope that someone listening just had an aha if you don't realize what what's that old expression that's like if you don't have to pay to use something you are the product yeah you're the product so if you don't understand that you being there and you being on those devices for as long as possible is what the actual company is and that they will do everything to keep you there then you can so easily be manipulated into feeling whatever emotion is necessary to keep you engaged with the device, which is terrifying and has to play into scarcity too, right? Like if I'm not on this, am I missing out? Do I not understand what's happening in the world? And like, what, how does that play into like today with, we think that going into these spaces is something that's actually good for us. Like, oh, I need to be connected. Mm -hmm. This is not human connection. This is something very different. So when you look at what people generally crave, it all tends to be things that would have kept us alive in the past, right? So food, stuff, uh, information, connection slash influence slash status. So social media plays on our uh, drive to influence other people, yeah. to be socially connected. Now, these are all things that made sense, kept us alive, right? Let's say I'm the person who um, I'm able to influence other people in our tribe. So humans probably evolved in groups of people that were that didn't have more than 150 people. It was clear, like, where you were in the pecking order, kind of, right? But you also, like, knew the people around you, and, like, you could only do so much. Um, but at the same time, if you had more status, it probably gave you a survival advantage. So you probably got out of menial 
crappy labor, right? You probably got more food, probably had all these other things. Um, but today, this drive we have to sort of influence others, connect with people, also have a level of status, it gets put on this application that also quantifies it, right? There's a hard metric behind it. Right. So when Facebook started putting um, the number of likes that you have, like it just took off. Like that, that feature took off, and this was years ago. And this is totally different than how we lived in the past, right? There, there was only so many people we could influence, for one. We didn't have like a hard metric of, okay, you have, you know, 100 friends and you have 50 friends. And so the 100 friend person is going, hey, yeah, I have I more got value. You. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I don't think that's necessarily good. Now, some people, you know, a lot of people can put this in context and it's fine. They're like, oh, yeah, this is not the real world. Um, but not everyone can do that. And to your point about kids, I think that when you look at how the human brain changes when we're going through uh, about puberty to about age 25. So a handful of things are happening that make social media um, maybe more dangerous than other times in our life. One is that we really, really crave social connection. And it becomes way more important for us than at any other time in our life. And like you sort of rise and fall with how you feel you're socially connected. And so when you put that on an application and you can see those hard metrics, that tends to not be great for teenagers. I also feel like this is happening with my teenagers and it happens with adults too. Is there is a real disconnect between what would happen for them on social media and what they're actually feeling in their real life. So my two oldest are teenagers. One is 16, almost 17, and one is 15. And they both have Instagram, but they're private accounts. So it's only allowed to be connected with their friends. And I'll see them post something and it's a weekend with their friends and it's so great and it gets all the likes and it's really cute. But there is a disconnect between like, the attention that a post like that gets and the real life where he's studying for a test that he's pretty stressed out about and he's feeling anxiety and he's dealing with all of the elements of being it. It's like, I, I think that we miss this. We're like, Oh, if I, if I just, if that just is good, right. If the public likes me, if the public thinks that thumbs up, you're doing a good job, then I'm going to feel something. But the feeling isn't connected to this sort of fake world that we create. And I'm speaking as someone who I came up and built my business completely on social media. I started as a blogger in 2008. So I have always been a part. As soon as Facebook was a thing that wasn't just used by a college student, I was on Facebook and I had a page and I built a – I've like done every iteration of social media. And so – when it first started to happen, it was just like, oh my gosh, look how cool. There's someone following my Facebook page who I don't know, like Carol from Des Moines. This is crazy. And then it became, oh wow, I'm I'm popular because I this thing, this thing on the internet is getting attention. And I went sort of all the way to the top of like, you can explode on social, your career can do all of these things. But in taking that journey and having it be a, a long time. I wasn't an overnight. It was a, it was a many years. I think the gift in that for me was 
being able to separate myself and realize there's no substance attached to what is happening on this fake internet machine. I like to think that I'm trying to explain the internet to like my great grandma or, you know, an ancestor. I'm like, well, it's a, it's a thing that's made up, but that we all get on a box and then, and it's sort of like, if you can't explain it to your ancestor, does it, is it relevant to what's happening to you in this moment? Cause I know, I mean, we're just seeing massive increases of anxiety, massive increases of depression, death of despair is really common now. There's all of these things that if we look back, it starts to rise in 2011, which is when Mm -hmm. all of the social became a thing. How is the scarcity mindset playing into the, what we're experiencing in terms of mental health in this country right now, probably globally as well? Yeah. Well, I mean, something came to mind when you were um, talking and that's that I think what can happen when you quantify a behavior and that happens with social media because it's like, okay, this post got X amount of likes, this post got Y amount of likes, this post got Z is that it starts to shift your goals of why you're doing the thing you're doing in oh, the first man. place. Yeah. That is a big unlock. Let's unpack that. But sorry, I didn't so interrupt. keep going. I'm going to, I'll use Twitter as an example. And it's I, X now, Michael. It's X, so. yeah. The, <laughs> <laughs> old habits die hard. So I talked about in the in the book, I go and I meet with a guy whose name is T. Wynn. So it's spelled T-H-I-N-G-U-Y-E-N. And he's a philosopher of games. He talked about how when he first goes onto Twitter, it's like, you know, you use it, whatever, you're putting whatever. And then he he gets a viral tweet. So he writes this kind of, funny quip and it just takes off and afterwards what happens his brain starts to go what could i do that would be a funny viral tweet so this guy's a philosopher his job is to think for a living so he would normally be thinking okay i have this thought that's kind of interesting and relevant to this literally philosophy stuff i'm doing at a university And he would normally take that down the deep rabbit hole you need to unpack all the layers between that because that's like a really complicated stuff, right? But once he has that tweet go viral, he starts to notice instead of taking this thought into this like really deep layers, this cave where I can get all this really relevant information, my brain starts to go, I wonder how I could get that into 280 characters and get some more retweets again. Yes. And that's a totally different thing. I mean, let's just unpack Twitter in the first place. The app bills itself as it is, uh, like it's for discussion, right? So then you ask, okay, well, what are the goals of the discussion? And the goals of a discussion are many. Could be to understand someone, to be understood, to transmit information, to empathize, to bitch together, to commiserate. I mean, like there's just all these things that can happen, all these different outcomes and goals and blah, blah, blah. But the problem is, is that when people get onto Twitter and you quantify this act of tweeting and you put likes, followers, retweets, people start to change their behavior to get likes, followers, and retweets. And the way that you tweet to do that is different than how you tweet in a normal discussion or talk in a normal discussion. So what is actually going to get likes and retweets is controversial stuff. Yep. It's dunking on people. Yep. It's being like, yo, I am actually more, uh, you know, I hate this term, but it's the only one coming to mind. Like, I am more woke than you on this idea, mm-hmm. right? And this just pushes people farther apart. And like the guy who I spoke to, um, when he noticed that 
if you want a tweet to go viral, it kind of had to be a little bit dickish too. Mm -hmm. So it changes our behavior, right? Anytime you put a number on something and that's what tech tends to do. And so you also see this, uh, you can apply this to anything. So uh, for example, I'm a professor. Think about grades, right? Why the hell do you go to college? It's like, well, I want to learn all this stuff. I want to get ready for careers. I want to make a bunch of friends. I want to learn how to like get my shit together because I'm going to have to turn in papers on time. But when we start to put things on this 4.0 scale, like all my students really care about is like, what, am, what grade am I going to get? Because I need this number GPA, right? And I've personally found that the students who are the best, the ones that I would hire, that I would recommend, they don't always get A's. The ones who get A's are very robotic. They're like, I need this number. To me, being healthy is really grounded in nutrition. Honestly, what I eat and what my kids eat is super important to how we live our lives. It's why I love a company like Thrive Market, because Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So when I go online and I use their on-site filters, I can figure out exactly my lifestyle needs and trust that what I'm getting from Thrive Market is what I want to take into my body. When you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. You can join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash rach for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash rach. Thrivemarket.com slash rach. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Do you as a professor feel like are they aiming at the grades because that's become the educational version of a like? Or yes. A yes. So it's you get the grade to get the grade because it puts this very clear number. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's so the reason that we get obsessed with numbers in the first place is it's very clear that you've done the right or wrong thing. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I My oldest is like. I have said it a million. I'm like, I don't know where he got this. Like, I I did not get straight. I mean, he is he is the kid that legit I've had to talk because he'll get like a 93 on a test. Mm -hmm. And he would take it back and be like, can I do a retake? I know I got 100 in me. And I'm like, yeah. bro, what right. are you doing? That's a big, that's a really important thing to understand. But you can apply this to a lot of different things. All right, so if you you get on to, let's say you get on to Instagram and 
why do you get on in the first place? It's probably like, oh, I wanted to like keep up with my college friends. I want to do all that. Like there's all these reasons, right? But once you start to get the likes, you start to, the, the application literally trains you to behave in such a way that gets you the points. Yes. Because that's clear. That's, it's like, oh, I've done the right thing, right? All these other things are very ambiguous. It's kind of murky. It's like, how do you know all these things? You right. don't. But if you can just slap a number on something, it's like, well, that number is uh, bigger than that one. So I've clearly done the right thing here, but we miss a lot of the complexities and the nuance. And those are the things that I think ultimately give people more meaning. I think what's interesting about this too, we have so many listeners of the show who are entrepreneurs, they have their own business, they're working toward, you know, they have a podcast or write books or whatever. And given that both you and I have, you know, books and speak and do those things, it's interesting to bring it back to what is what is the point? What is the intention totally. of doing this work? Because this is something that has just gone wildly out of control in the last five years, in my opinion, my professional opinion, is that there's so much information on social media about how to use social media for your business. And it's just more distraction and it's just more busy work. And it's more people going like, oh, well, my TikTok blew up or, you know, that reel got more likes than this reel. But the whole goal was that you wanted to get a book deal or the whole goal was that you wanted more people to listen to your podcast or the whole goal was that you wanted to make more as a speaker or sell your product or get more people to come into your bakery. But we start on a path with the intention of like helping our business or growing our brand. And then we get obsessed with what will be the most viral since, oh, that, that got more than this. Okay, I'll make more stuff like that. But the amount of people who do not pause to ask, did it bring more customers into your bridal shop? Like, did it actually do the thing that you wanted it to do? Because there is a crazy perception right now that the more likes you get, the more views you get on a reel, the more reach that your social has, the better your business is. And that is, it's not true. It's so funny. I, I love seeing stuff where I'm like, this podcast over here is like quietly crushing business, getting all the ads, doing all the things. But this person over here is like, they have a bigger social feed. Mm -hmm. So the public might admire that social feed, but it's so important to step back and be like, what is the goal? If your goal is to be the cutest person on Instagram and have them, you can do that. But I don't know that it's actually going to get you closer to the person you want to be or the finances you want to have or the life that you want to live. And understanding that that machine is created to sort of confuse you along that path, to make you feel like you're doing something when you're not really doing anything. Yeah, totally. And I think, I think this happens to everyone. But to your point, it is, why am I doing this in the first place? How am I really – and at the same time, like – I know that there are various goals of business. Like on one hand, you need to make enough money to, you know, figure out how much you need to make for whatever lifestyle you want to live. But also you probably want to positively impact people. Well, that's harder to measure. Yeah. You know, there's all these other things you want to do too. But I feel like that when you can put a number on something, whether it's, you know, a salary or whether it's an amount of followers, it makes you feel, it gives you the illusion that you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And especially because a lot of times those things are socially validated. And they're socially validated because they're easy to compare. Salary is a good one too that we can often get captured by. It's like, 
why do you want to make money in the first place? Yes. Well, probably to be happy. Well, at a certain point, trying to get that number to go up more is probably going to decrease your happiness. Therefore, it's doing the opposite of what the you opposite. want it to do. So it's almost like life is not a very clear thing, right? There's all these different things that are competing all the time. And it's almost like a giant soundboard where when you move one knob up, <laughs> it's going to distort the sound a little bit. So then you're going to have to counter with this one, but then this one's going to go down and it's constantly just messing with the dials and they're never going to be perfect. Because if it's like a live concert, it's like, well, we're playing another song in like five minutes, dude. And those levels aren't going to work perfect for that one. So kind of trying to be aware and also being okay with like things are going to be ambiguous sometime and I have to learn to be okay with that. And so, yeah, the way I look at it in the book is like really unpacking why do we get fixed on numbers in the first place? And then what can we do to sort of begin to get out of that yeah. cycle a little bit? And what can we do to begin to get out of it? Well, I think that with these behaviors that fall into the scarcity loop, and there's a there's a lot of them um, that I mentioned, um, I think just becoming aware of that's why we fixate uh, in the first place. And I mentioned that it happens in all sorts of different animals. So unpredictability grabs the attention of all animals and they will get hooked on it. Pigeons, rats, whatever. And then you can either remove or change any of the three parts of what that loop is. So you can shift, okay, to your point of why am I doing this in the first place? That's the opportunity, right? So asking, what is my ultimate goal here? Because we do tend to get captured by those easily measurable things. You can slow down the repetition. So a good example is from the book, you start to see obesity rise when snack food gets introduced. And snack food tends to be really quick to eat. So it's ultra processed. People will eat more of it faster. So eating foods that are even just less processed, have one ingredient, it just slows down the act of eating and people tend to lose weight. And this is demonstrated in studies by the NIH. Yeah, there's all these different ways you can do that. So I'm curious, I know this from my own work and a lot of my friends who are writers, we tend to write about the thing that maybe we're struggling with on some level. Is that what got you into writing these books? Was there like anything in your own life that you were dealing with that you were like, I need to understand why I'm making these choices? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally just like a, I'm trying to figure out my own shit here. Yeah. So the first book I started thinking about that is, so I got sober like nine years ago. Cool. And it very much was, you know, I was taking the sort of short short-term reward at the expense of long-term growth. That to me is really what kind of addiction is. And that was something I, you know, I tried to quit drinking tons and tons of times. And I think it just finally dawned on me like, oh, this is actually gonna be really hard, but it's gonna save your life. It's gonna add years to your life in the long run. And getting sober was not easy at all. It's very uncomfortable in the short term. But by going through that, my life improved across the board, like full stop, right? And when I got sober, I was working at Men's Health Magazine. So I came up in uh, my background as magazines and journalism. And I noticed that literally everything that we would cover in that magazine, you had to go through short-term discomfort to get the benefit. Exercise, best thing you can do for your health. Exercise isn't fun though. Yeah. But then on the other side of that, you feel better and your health improves. Same with if you want to lose weight, you're probably going to have to be hungry at some point, but your health improves. Same with mental health right? It's, you're going to have hard conversations. You're going to have to ask yourself some hard questions. You're going to have to change some behaviors. 
but you improve. And so that ultimately led me to write The Comfort Crisis because once I had made that observation that short-term discomfort often leads to long-term gains in people's lives, then um, just through reporting a variety of stories, I realized, oh, wow, like humans have made the world a lot more comfortable than the worlds that we evolved in. And we did this very fast. And I wonder how, I just wondered how that had changed us. Yeah. And that led to starting to report the book. And then once I got done with that book, you know, I'd been sober for a while. I noticed that I was um, starting to fixate on some of those number things, right? Like, okay, I used to be a total mess of a human being, chaotic. Life was in ruins. And then once I get sober, it's like I, I overcorrect. Like everything's got to be dude, you got to stay in this lane. Everything's got to be perfect. You got to have outward appearances have to be great. You got to make a certain amount of money. And that started driving me crazy. Right. It's like playing whack-a-mole. I, it's, I interviewed Arthur Brooks, I think last month, and there's some statistic, which I'm going to butcher right now, but he talks about, it's something like for anybody who goes on a diet, these numbers are going to be wrong. So go back and listen to his actual <laughs> quote. But it was something like, for everyone who goes on a diet, 50% of people will actually be able to achieve the weight loss goal that they've set for themselves. And of the 50% of people who will achieve that goal, 25% of those people will develop some kind of eating disorder because they get to the goal and it felt so good to get to the goal that they keep going. They're like, well, what else can I do? How much else can I lose? How, how, what are the other ways that I can improve? How can I make my mm -hmm. life better? So I resonate with that one so much because I think as a high achiever, if you like figure something out or it feels so good to figure something out. Like right. when I got into personal development a billion years ago, it, I didn't know it was called that. I wasn't looking. I was just having extreme debilitating anxiety. And I was like, I don't want to live this way. And maybe there's some solutions or some ideas for how I can not live this way. And when that, when there were and they worked, I was like, what else can I do? What else? What else? And I have to remind myself too, I can get similarly sort of obsessed with, well, like, well, maybe I should have a perfect butt. Maybe I should get six pack abs. Maybe I should, I um, got to interview Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, for his new book. And he was talking about this thing, which was like, I cannot explain what a huge, this is so eye-opening for me. And it's so simple and so stupid. And it's like exactly what you're saying. He's like, I cannot understand people who go to the gym and don't know why they're there. They go to the gym because they want to check a box. I went to the gym. I'm healthy. But they get there and he's like, I watch them. They sort of wander around. They do a little bit here. There's no, there's no plan. There's no intentionality. Like, why are you at the gym? And that was, it's so stupid, but that was such a big thing for me of like, oh, I'm at the gym because I want to be healthy. I want to have energy. I want to take care of my body. I want to be in shape. Those are the things that are important to me. But when I go to the gym, Michael, Sometimes I look over and I see these women and their bodies are insane and they're like six pack cut, like they got that booty and it's like you have worked on your butt. They've done all the things and my brain goes, oh, come on, you could do that. You should put some effort in, like get, get her butt. And that is such a huge, no, that's not why I'm here. I have no desire. That is not my goal. That's not what I am aiming for. That's good for her, not for me. But if you don't understand that you have to know why you're in a place, why, why am I here? Why am I doing this? If you don't have intention, the world will give you your intention. And often it's going to take you way off the person that you actually want to be. Yeah. 
Totally. And I think we, I think we live in a world where, you know, there's so many things we should be doing and specific plans that are available to us to try and achieve those. And we don't often um, stop and ask, yeah, why am I doing this in the first place? And I think that we oftentimes just accept uh, information that comes in and just sort of roll with it. Like, oh yeah, everyone else is doing that. I should too. One of the things I talk about in scarcity brain is that we live in a world now where the average person in one day sees more information than uh, the average person 700 years ago would have seen in their entire life. That's, that's bonkers. Their entire life. <laughs> it's bonkers. And that's totally changed us. So we are a species who craves information because in the past information would have given us a survival advantage. If you know where the food is going to be, if you know that a storm is rolling in, if you know that that really mean tiger usually hangs out over there, that gives you a survival advantage. Yeah. But today, that often gets applied to areas where this information maybe doesn't enhance our life all the time, right? Now it's like, I'll take me as an example. Anytime I have a half-baked idea or thought pop into my head, it's like, I'm going to Google it. And it's like, why am I doing this? Why am I spending my time this way? <laughs> you know, my wife and I, we have like, we now leave our cell phones in the car when we go out to dinner. And every time we get out, my wife will always joke like, well, what happens if we want to know how old uh, Jack Nicholson exactly. is? Exactly. It's know? so true. <laughs> it's so true. The fact that you can, I do this with my boyfriend all the time. We'll be like, who was that actor in that thing? And rather than sit there, or it'll be like a game, like, no, let's not look at our phone. Let's figure it out. Mm -hmm. We really do. We have that info available at any moment. Totally. I think that we have more knowledge than ever. I don't necessarily know if we have as much understanding. So we can't necessarily put all the pieces together. And I do think that sometimes this kind of quick information ecosystem we live in doesn't necessarily lead us to the right answers. So something I talk about in the book, and this is like, kind of rule I've had in my journalism career. So when I was uh, 21, I was an es uh, intern at Esquire magazine. And we would just have to look up random facts and just do reporting and stuff like that. So I get, uh, I have to find out how much money the Pope makes. Okay, <laughs> this is my assignment. So I go online, I Google around. Uh, I even call like this Catholic historian or something. And I submit the research file to my editor. I get an email back. It was meet me in the conference room in five minutes. I'm like, okay. So I go in there and he's a very Esquire dude, right? He's got like the tie is loosened, buttoned down. It's the end of the day. We're at the Hearst building in Manhattan. And he's just like leaned back. And I sit down and he goes, no, 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 no. If you want to know how much money the Pope makes, you call the fucking Vatican. Call the fucking Vatican. So we often miss yeah. that the way to get good information today often requires going to the source, picking up the phone. Like that is the most obvious way yeah. to figure out that yeah. the answer to that question. Yeah. yeah. But our brain goes, oh, I'll Google it and I'll go like seven different sites have and different I'll read competing a information. Yeah. From 2017. Yeah. yeah. So obviously every single question you have, you can't run it through that algorithm or you go crazy. But like for the important questions in life, like, yeah, maybe run it through that algorithm. Like go to directly to the source. If you want to know what someone thinks, like ask them. Well, we also fall into this trap of 
there's so many ideas now. If you go on social media, if you go on TikTok or Instagram or X or any of them, there's so many ideas. Here's how I did this. Here's how I do this. Here's 10 ways to get this, which is awesome. And I love that stuff when I'm looking for a solution. But the piece that we're missing in that is someone who's at a completely different place in life than us, someone who might be at a different socioeconomic place, someone who's in a different part of the world. There are so many factors that go into why that worked for that one mm -hmm. person that will take the idea and apply it, like want to apply it to our life. I love ways for improvement. I think that you and I have this in common. Like my whole life and then my career just became that, like I'm trying something to make my life better. And then I'm just sharing it with you guys. Let's here, try this idea. But what I've learned as I've gotten older and I've had more success in my career and I have evolved to a higher place as a human is I keep seeing ideas and I'm like, ooh, that feels fun. I want to try that because I love anything that can make it better and I will try it. And I'm not seeing – it's just not working for me. I'm not really seeing the results. And it's taken me a while to understand – this is going to sound however this sounds – that – at some point, like you're, you get to a level where you're not going to see the drastic improvement because you already have improved so much. So it's like when you get to a certain level of like, okay, I'm at this place in my health now. So the 10 simple tricks to make you healthier aren't going to move the needle as much for someone who already is pretty far in that direction mm -hmm. versus if you're just starting out drinking more water is the simple it's going to make your life better going on a walk in the evening after dinner is going to make your life better but learning to like add in the extra layer the context of your own life and the context of the person who's giving you advice is a piece that we're just missing because it's so exciting to see the info this is the dumbest example that is hilarious i'm going to tell you you're a dude and i'm going to give it to you anyway there's this fabulous woman on Instagram who puts together amazing outfits. Mm -hmm. She's always wearing shoulder pads, Michael. And she swears by a shoulder pad. Okay. And I'm like, whoa, I didn't know that at 40. I need to get back into, I, you know, it's the 80s again. Apparently shoulder pads are back. But she looks so gorgeous. I was like, that's it. That's what I'm missing, Jack. I'm missing shoulder pads. Shoulder pads. So I order like four shirts with shoulder pads, you guys. <laughs> It shows up. I look insane. I look like a little girl in my mom's outfit, whatever. And then I realize this chick is like six feet tall and a double zero. I'm like, she needs shoulder pads because without them, she's wasting away. And I'm dying like, Rachel, you're smarter than this. Like give context to who the information came from and what your actual life is before you decide to try this, you know, expert advice. So are you saying that people are different? <laughs> I'm saying <laughs> that I should wear shoulder pads and people are different. So, and this is, but this applies to everything. So something that's fun is like even in studies. Okay. So we like, oftentimes people read study and like, that's the gospel. But when you start to pull back the layers of what actually happened in the study, you'll find there are a lot of outliers in studies and people like not everything. We're taking averages, right? So there's this really famous study where they put people on a, low-fat diet and another group on a low-carb diet, for example, and they wanted to see, you know, which one was better for weight loss. Now, at the end, they found they're the same on average. That's the important part. 
So everyone goes, okay, they are the exact same, blah, blah, blah. But when you actually peel back the data, you found that some people lost like 20 pounds on one or the other. Some people gained like 20 pounds on one or the other. And so what this suggests to me is that, sure, most people, most of the time, it's not going to matter, but not all people all the time. Now, extrapolate that to every decision you make across your life, and it basically suggests that you need to try things for yourself, too, because that is ultimately how you learn, is through experience. Yes. And so, you know, you get a piece of information that might come from some study and like, no, this is the thing, because science, it's like, well, you can still try stuff and see whether it works for you, because you might find that, yeah, like my experience jives with the science, great, but you might find it doesn't, right? And so like, I don't know, people get so married to study findings that it's like, just figure out what works for, like find reasonable things. And if they work for you, great. Yeah. It's like, it reminds me of that really famous study. I can't remember if it's like the 70s or the 80s where they did um, research on hormone replacement therapy in women. And the results were so horrendous. And like for years and years and decades, it was like hormone replacement therapy is terrible and nobody should do it. And it had these awful results. And then when you unpeel the layers, you find out that they tested, all the women they tested were 50 plus. So they weren't mm -hmm. actually, they were women who were mostly post-menopause. You weren't getting an accurate reading of hormone therapy and balancing it and just all of these things. But for decades, there were opinions based or there was the expert advice on this really specific thing that could have helped a lot of women and it was tested on the wrong, wrong subjects or how many years in medicine were things tested exclusively on men so you never really understood how they affected women's bodies. The idea of trying and experimenting in your own life, it goes back to what we were originally saying is that it actually is a better solution for you, but it takes longer. Yeah. You're not gonna feel good as fast. And I think it's probably easy for us because you strike me as someone similar to myself where I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to test it for a month and see how I'm like, you know, oh, broccoli sprouts. OK, I'm going to throw that in my smoothie for a month and see if I feel a difference. OK, this thing. It, let's try. Oh, LED red light therapy. Let's go. Like, I like the experimentation, which also is something that I'm able to experience because of privilege, because I've been in a certain area, because I can you know, test and do things that not everybody has the ability to do. But it really is the long-term win. It's the long-term solution to try little things out in your life and see if you feel an improvement because of those choices. Yeah, totally. Both of my books, they don't have super, I mean, it's all kind of like this conversation we're having now. We're like, here are some, here's like some general common sense guidelines here are these things that are affecting your life in ways that seem to work for most people most of the time. But it's never broken down into like, you must eat X food Y times a day because that might work for like 5% of people, but then you have 95% of people who it doesn't work for at all. Absolutely. And so knowing it's sort of like learn to fish rather than just get the fish caught for you. I'm kind of pivoting now, but something else that I've been thinking about because we were talking about information is... So when I'm reporting this book, I'm thinking about information and how we have just so much of it today and how it often changes our experience of life and living it, more or less. I end up getting this uh, email from NASA. Okay, so it's just... That happens to me all the time. All it's the funny time. that you mention it. <laughs> so it's this random person from NASA, and they're like, hey, the this astronaut named Mark Vandehei, he wants to talk to you. He's in the ISS. And I'm like, this feels like the new 
Nigerian prince. Yeah, hundred percent. It's a fishing scheme. Yeah, they're like, just give us ten thousand dollars, yeah. and we'll give you twenty. So I'm going. I'm like looking at. It, I'm like, all right, we'll we'll, we'll give it a try because it's a .gov address. So I'm like, okay, we'll see. Blah blah blah. So long story short, NASA has this program where if uh, an astronaut just wants to talk to someone, anyone, they'll just reach out. You know, and so yeah, because who doesn't want to talk to an astronaut? That's it. They're like, would you like to talk to him? I'm like, yeah, obviously. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So they set up this video conferencing, and you got to use this like super special government encrypted Zoom, right? Oh, right, because he's on the space station. He's on the space oh, station. Oh my word! Okay, so I'm still kind of thinking it's a long con, but video screen comes in, and the dude is floating in outer space. I mean, he's on the ISS, just hovering. You know, hey, <laughs> just like holy shit. But in talking to him, what struck me is that his whole reason for being in outer space is to find information. Information that can teach us how to survive should we ever need to, as a species, leave this planet. Literally. Crazy. Yeah. Now, the difference is that for him to get that information, he has to physically go there. It is a mind-body effort. He needs to put in physical work to go to this place to get information. And that's how it was for people for all of time. So humans are really interesting in the fact that no creature explores like we do. So in 50,000 years, we literally took over the world. We like leave Africa. We go up into these frozen places. We come into the Americas, like on probably on boats. We take over the entire globe in 50,000 years, not to mention we climb up Everest. We go into outer space. We go down to the deepest reaches of the ocean. So we have this exploratory drive to get information that improves our life, right? We're always looking for the greener grass. In the past, like I said, you had to physically go there. You had to put in physical work. You had to put in mental effort. There was a lot of like, what's going to be there? We're going to see, right? It's like this kind of gamble. But today that gets transferred in a way that I think isn't always productive. Because now when we have that sort of itch to know what lies in the beyond, it just comes through our phone. And I think it shapes our experiences too. So think about um, the last time you went to a new restaurant. Did you just like pick it at random and walk in? Never. Never. No, you looked at I'm Yelp. Looking at, yeah, I'm looking at all the food pictures. You I'm looked studying at Instagram. The menu. Yeah. yeah. You knew what you were going to order. 100%. You were hoping for a specific table. You All these different things, right? And so that changes your experience of that because you didn't go in cold. And I have expectations. You have expectations. Right. So a lot of the book looks at how one chapter of the book, not a lot of it, looks at how that's changed our experience of life and living it because it is different, right? It used to be that if you went into a place, you wouldn't know what was going on. And there's something inherently rewarding for that. You're getting information in the present tense. You're having to analyze, make judgments for yourself that aren't mediated by Sally, whatever, 99 on Yelp. You don't know which table you want. It's just like this full on, like you have to be in it and you don't know what's going to happen. It's like a slot machine, right? You're giving me, I'm having a lot of like epiphanies with you today (laughs) because I'm, I'm thinking of this in terms of, I, I'm going to go back to the Camino, which we did this summer. It was unexpectedly so incredible. Like it was the most amazing. I was shocked at how much I loved it. Like the vacation was meant to be a week on the Camino and then a week in Ibiza at a ridiculous bougie spa resort. The Camino in the dirt was 
thousand times better, more fun, more fulfilling for me in every way than the bougie spa in Ibiza, which was shocking because I am a bougie bitch. (laughs) And I'm realizing that's it. Very interestingly, I did so much research. I tried to find blogs. I tried to find YouTube videos. There's not a ton of content of the Camino. There's like people posting on Instagram, like a shot of a dirt road. That's kind of, (laughs) you know, and there's books and I had read them all, but there's not, it's not like if I want to go to a restaurant here in LA, I could, I didn't know what I was expecting. And so it was so much prettier than I thought it was going to be. It was, the people were so much nicer. There were hardships that I wasn't anticipating, like all of it. I was so present. I was not on my phone one time during my hike, not once. I thought I would need music. I thought, no, I was so present in that moment. And I'm realizing that's why, because I had to be, because I didn't know where I was. I'm like, are we about to be set on by, you know, are there, is someone going to jump us on these cobblestone yeah. streets? Like, I don't know. And that, that I'm so glad you said that because I have, I'm going back this year to finish it. And I'm like, I don't want to research anything. Let's just go and see what we see. And how many other things in life could we approach in the very same way? Because it will force us to be present in this moment. Yeah. That's so good. That's how humans live for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Isn't it funny? Or do you ever think it's funny that we have come so far in this direction that we now have to create scenarios where we're going back Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, I've worked. There's some funny, uh, some comedian who talks about camping that you work <laughs> yeah. so hard to get to a place so you have enough money to go pretend that you no longer have a home. Yeah. As Jack, who lo- like would live in the dirt camping if he could. What do you feel like is the number one thing that a scarcity mindset is pushing onto us right now? Oh, whatever we can get. <laughs> I mean, there's shopping. So when you look at what, sort of humans uh, crave its food, its stuff, its information, its status and influence. I mean, we haven't talked about stuff. Stuff is a good one, right? So if you, in the past, if you had more tools, that would probably give you survival advantage. So we have a craving for things. Mm -hmm. Even like 15 years ago, if you wanted to go buy something, you had to, you had to pause. You had to walk down to the store, drive to the store, uh, but now anytime you're like, eh, I'm, I'm bored or oh, I might want this thing to help me solve X perceived problem that by the way, isn't actually a real problem. You can go onto Amazon yeah. and there's something for it. And the average home today has between 10,000 and 40,000 items in it. I mean, that's insane. Even 150 wow. years ago, people didn't really own that much. Wow. Like the average uh, woman in the 1800s had three outfits, even the richest person. Thomas Jefferson's wife, 17 outfits total, entirety. Right. And now the average person has more than 100 outfits. And you probably don't wear all those either. Yeah. I mean, I think most people can say, yeah, I pretty much wear the same handful of, of things. And things just collect and collect and collect. And one thing that happens, though, is then once we realize we got all this stuff, then we go, okay, like, I'm going to do, I'm purging. I'm going to minimize everything. But we often haven't solved the underlying reason of why we keep buying all the shit in the first place. Yeah. And so then it's so like, it's just going to go It's back just up. a reset. Yeah, yeah. It's like rewinding a videotape and then hitting play again. Yeah. And I think the underlying reasons are basically, there's basically like four reasons why people buy things. 
One is because they help us achieve something. So this is like a tool. This is like gear, right? I'm using this to do this greater thing. That is a huge thing for a lot of people who are trying to go on a health journey or a fitness journey is they will go buy all the gear mm-hmm. and buying the gear will make them feel like they did the thing and that will be enough. And that'll be enough. Yeah. Or like, and I'm super guilty of this. Probably every human on the planet is where you'll like put on the workout outfit and then you're like, well, I'm going to get to the gym. I'm going to go, I'm going to go on a run later today. And you'll like go do your, your, your errands and you'll drop the kids at school. And it's like, oh, look at her and her little fit. And she must've gotten to the gym and gotten yeah. it all done. It's like, no, I'm just wearing the Lululemon. It makes you feel good. Totally. Uh, there's also because it um, gets a status. So for example, a Rolex watch. Yeah. And no one buys a Rolex to know what time it is. Yeah. So certain items can separate us from other people in a way that sort of elevates us above them. Uh, And then the third reason is for belonging. So this would be buying things because it makes you part of an in-crowd. Yeah. People like us do things like this. Yeah. Yeah. I got my Harley Davidson leather jacket and I'm a motorcycle. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, why does everyone at the Grateful Dead concert and Fish concert wear Patagonia? And why at Metallica are they all wearing Harley Davidson stuff? Right? Like, you you understand what I'm talking about. And then the fourth reason I think is boredom. Honestly, I think that people get bored and they go, oh, what should I do? They're on their phone, they're on Instagram. And then the algorithm just puts that perfectly, that perfect (laughs) item that, you know, is going to capture their attention in front of them. And it's like, hey, yeah, I'll I'll buy it. It's easy to buy. Yeah. So part of the framing that I look at in the book to sort of get out of this is taking taking the lens of gear rather than stuff. It's really asking, what is this? item going to help me do that's going to enhance my life in another way, right? So it's like it's sort of cutting out all the excess reasons. I like to also think of if I'm going to get something, if I'm going to acquire something new, maybe a new piece of clothing or um, I love kitchen tools and gadgets for cooking, that I need to give something up. Because otherwise, it'll just get so overwhelming. I'll have so much stuff that I'm not really appreciating anything that I actually have already. But if I will go, okay, like I have a really bad problem buying. I don't need one more sweatshirt. I don't need one more vintage concert tee. I'm going to get some. But I don't need them. And so I'm like, okay, well, if you're going to get one, you gotta give you got to give this one to a friend or donate this or whatever. Because otherwise, you're going to have this closet or this house or all of it. It's just filled with crap and you don't even really know what the good stuff is or the things that you love are because it's all mixed in with a bunch of stuff that it just it's overwhelming and I think you're speaking in terms of science but I also think in terms of like energy and vibration and like stuff there's an energy to stuff and there's a I don't know if guys feel like this but I know a lot of women who will get shame around the things that they have bought it's internal or external or both? Internal. Well, I guess external it's for sure. From other yeah, people. it could come from other people, but I'm it's more like friends of mine or me. Like you'll you're somewhere, you were feeling good, like you were with your friend, whatever, and you saw a leather jacket. You're like, oh I've never worn a leather jacket before, but I think I could be a leather jacket kind mm-hmm. of person. And you splurge and you buy the thing, and then you get home and you're like, this doesn't look good on me. But no, I'm going to keep it because I want to be this kind of person. It just sits in your closet, sits in your closet. And every time you see it, 
you are reminded that you spent this huge amount of money and you're like, no, I'm going to use that. I'm saving that for a nice, and it'll sit there for years. And the energetic thing that that Mm. jacket does to you every time you see the thing you don't like, but you don't want to, you didn't take back and you don't want to waste it. And you feel ashamed that you've made this sort of like shopping mistake Mm -hmm. that I don't know, like maybe for dudes, it's like equipment or something where you're like, I shouldn't have spent that amount of money. And I'm going to try to prove to myself that I can do it. Versus if you just go, oh my God, oh, we're just get rid of it. The energetic vibe that that gives to your life costs just as much, if not more, as whatever amount of money you spent trying to get it into your closet. Yeah, it kind of annoys you every time you see it. Yeah. I think that that's definitely true for guys. I think, I think culturally, unfortunately, women get positioned more as like the shoppers when I don't think that's necessarily true. Right. I think that men and women buy at equal rates. I mean, I can think <laughs> you brought up concert tees, which is funny. So I'm a big Grateful Dead fan. Yeah. And my wife had to cut me off when it came to Grateful Dead t-shirts. She's just like, please stop. She's just like, you got 11 Grateful Dead t-shirts. Yeah, you're good. We don't need an, we don't need the sweatshirt. Yeah. We don't need the the poster from the tour in yeah. 1994. Right. Like, come on, dude. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. I you're get probably it though. Right. Yeah. I get it. Cause you're like, oh, but this is the time that we went to the thing and I want to remember. Cause you're buying at the actual concert. Or are you buying like Both. vintage? Yeah. I'm buying it all. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I get it. But I think shopping, so a lot of these things that I'm, we're talking about, they do fall into that scarcity loop and businesses do leverage them, right? So it's the opportunity to get something that you think is going to enhance your life, right? It's this concert t-shirt or it's this leather jacket. When I get that leather jacket, I'm going to put that on and I'm going to become a new person, yep, a better person. It's going to be awesome, right? And then unpredictable rewards, you're like, what's going to happen when I have this thing, right? It's going to change. And then quick repeatability, it's like, oh. I'll go buy the next thing because yeah. it didn't work out. Even the act of shopping is like this search, it's unpredictable reward game search. Then you find the right one. It's like, bam, yeah. I got it. I got the one. And there's even advertisers that put uh, casino features into their ads and it increases um, conversion rates by sevenfold. Stuff sevenfold. like what? Like a spinning wheel for a bargain. So you go onto oh. a site and it's like, spin the wheel, get the bargain. Yeah. And you feel like, oh my God. I got this. I got this bargain that I otherwise, I otherwise wouldn't have. Yeah, it's crazy. I got to buy the big one. I'm. I'm again. I'm going to go to women, but maybe they do this to men too. That I see on a lot of websites for shopping is there's only a few left, or this sold out last season, or those websites that have like. Someone in Ohio just bought this. Someone in Florida just bought this. So I'm like, comp, nobody is buying at that clip, this random thing I'm looking at right now. But it does, for women, I think this, um, we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. We want to like be like, oh, oh, okay, everyone else is doing it. I've got to do this thing too. Yeah. What is it doing to our mental health? This, because it's got, the scarcity mindset has gotten to have, got worse over the last decade what are you seeing in studies how this is affecting us beyond just like making poor choices with shopping too much like what are the results of this yeah i I think there's a a lot of different results i think that we live in abundance of all these things that we're built to crave and they're good to a point they help us survive and live well to a point, but eventually they start to overwhelm us. So it gets, I think a lot of the, I'll give you an example. And it goes back to a study with animals. So when I was 
unpacking this scarcity loop, I asked the slot machine designer, I'm like, okay, yeah, this, this thing works at getting people's attention and like hooking us on these repeat behaviors that can hurt us in the long run. But why? Why does it work in the first place? And he's just like, I don't know, dude. Like my job is to make it work in a casino, you know? <laughs> so I end up calling this guy whose name is Thomas Zental. And he's this old school psychologist. So he's in his 80s now. Um, he's at the University of Kentucky. He's been studying behavioral psychology since the 60s. Like he came up through B.F. Skinner, which is like the, the, the OG behavioral psychologist. And this guy does studies where he can get a pigeon to turn into basically a dege degenerate gambler very quickly. So he'll take these pigeons from, you know, their cage that they live in, and he'll give them two games. The first game is a predictable game where they get food. The second game is more like a slot machine where they hit this button and they don't know if they're going to get food. They don't know if they're going to get food. And they'll sit and they'll play this slot machine game, even though it nets them less food than the predictable game. And they'll just play this over and over and over. They'll get hooked on it. 97% of pigeons choose the gambling game. What he ends up doing, though, is he, at one point, they put pigeons, they take them out of their sort of smaller cages that they live in. It's kind of sterile, kind of a boring life. They put them in this really big cage that is designed to mimic the wildlife that a pigeon would live. So the pigeon has to, you know, build its nests, it builds roosts, it goes up on ledges, it interacts with other pigeons. It does all these things that a pigeon out in the, the wild would do. And then he puts them back in the game and they all start choosing the game that gets them more food, the smarter game, the predictable rewards game. They don't gamble. So then the guy tells me, he goes, and when you think about humans today and these strange behaviors we get hooked on, I don't think we're that different from my pigeons. When we don't have enough stimulation in our life, we go looking for it in other places. We start to gamble. We spend too much time on social media. We do drugs to excess. We buy too much shit. We go down crazy internet conspiracy rabbit holes. We do all these things to find stimulation. So there's this theory called the optimal stimulation theory. And it basically says that all species need a certain amount of kind of hardship stimulation in their life in order to thrive. Now, when you think about how humans evolved, it's like we had to be working all the time. We didn't know what was going to come next. It was a harsh lifestyle, but it was also very stimulating, right? We're out doing all these things that we evolved to do in nature, finding food, doing all these things. And now we live in a world that is very different. That is a lot more like the smaller kind of cooped up lives that the pigeons lived at first. Yeah. And so that's God, his that's kind of good. overarching theory. That's yeah. so good. I want to talk to you about all of this forever, but I also am conscious that you have other podcasts today. But before you go, I want to ask you, what's 2%? Oh, I signed up for the email today. I went on your website. I signed up for the email. Oh, did you? Just, yeah. But I haven't gotten the email yet that tells me what you mean by 2%. So 2%, it comes from a study that found that only 2% of people take the stairs when there's also an escalator available. Now, 100% of those people knew that taking the stairs would give them a longer-term benefit. Yet 98% of people take the escalator. And so to me, this says that humans are wired to do the next easiest, most comfortable thing, even when we know it's not good for us. So the newsletter really looks at how to take the literal and metaphorical stairs and how doing that can enhance your life. So it kind of looks at that through a lot of different lenses. And we cover everything from like exercise to nutrition to mental health, to all the stuff we've been talking about. Cool. Yeah. And so if anyone else wants to sign up like I did, they can go to your website. Yeah. 
Where are all the places they can find you? They can find the book. Like, give us all the details about how to how to go deeper deeper with Michael Easter. <laughs> Eastermichael.com is my website. Even though we've just spent you know at least twenty minutes talking about the horror that is social media, I try to keep it positive there. It's Michael underscore Easter, and yeah. Cool. Thank oh, you and so the books are called the oh, book right. is uh, Scarcity Brain. Yeah, my editor's going, you son of a bitch. Yeah, you're like, come uh, on, get it. <laughs> Scarcity Brain and The Comfort Crisis. Yeah, thanks so much for hanging out, man. Yeah, thank awesome. you. I enjoyed it. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. Swing into Seaside Golf in Ocean City, Maryland. Play like a pro at 17 championship courses designed by golf legends like Jack Nicholas and Arthur Hills. Tee off on sweeping vistas at Eagles Landing. Savor the coastal views of Lighthouse Sound. Or see why Ocean City Golf Club is considered one of the Mid-Atlantic's finest fairways. Whether you're sneaking in a quick round on a family vacation or going all in on a golf getaway, fun is always in play at Ocean City, Maryland. Plan your trip at ococean.com. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas, Register today at thisisils.org.